The Tiger Tamer Who Went to Sea from History Extra charts the life of a remarkable Victorian, Britain's original long-distance wheelbarrow pedestrian. New episodes are out every Thursday or listen to the whole series immediately ad-free by subscribing to History Extra Plus on Apple Podcasts or listening on historyextra.com. This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. This episode is brought to you by ABC. Station 19 is back for its final and hottest season yet. Andy finally becomes captain, and she's going to give it her all to be the best leader this station has ever seen. Will she succeed? Get ready for fiery new romances and high adrenaline rescues. Watch the Station 19 season premiere Thursday at a new time, 10, 9 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. The American Bar Association provides access to career-changing and life-changing opportunities. Invest in your growth, deepen your knowledge, and join us in our pursuit of making a positive impact for all. The American Bar Association. Why is it that with sparkling water, I'm always playing guessing games with what flavor I'm drinking? Is it citrus? Is it aluminum can flavored? Mm, not sure. Sparkling ice, though, they really mean flavor. Like in-your-face flavor. Orange mango, black raspberry. Don't even get me started on the strawberry lemonade. Kiwi strawberry slid right into my taste buds DMs last night and let them know who's boss. No subtleties there and no sugar either. But it does have vitamins and antioxidants. Find sparkling ice at a major grocery store or club retailer near you. Sparkling ice. Anything but subtle. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. Late Victorian society was charmed by the plays of Oscar Wilde and equally captivated by their quick-witted, high-living author. But in 1895, the celebrated playwright and celebrity became embroiled in a scandal that ultimately saw his homosexual lifestyle exposed at a time when male homosexuality was illegal in Britain. Wilde found himself on trial facing charges of gross indecency. It's a story of danger and betrayal, which not only tells us about Wilde's life, but the prejudices of society at the time. Professor Joseph Bristow, author of a new book on the case, shares the story with Lauren Good. He began by telling Lauren about Wilde's life and career up until the point of his trial in 1895. He was born in Dublin in 1854, and he grew up in this incredibly elite, very distinguished, but also importantly, it was a Protestant family. But they were nationalists, and his mother was regarded as something of a firebrand. She was a very gifted poet. Her name was Jane Francesca Wilde, and she wrote under the pseudonym Speranza, which of course means hope. The father was one of the most distinguished ear surgeons in Europe. He was ear surgeon to Her Majesty the Queen. He was a highly educated man who had a profound knowledge and understanding of Irish archaeology. And together, the parents were collectors of ancient Irish lore and ancient folklore. The mother published extensively on Irish legends and folklore. 
Wilde then went to Batora Royal in Enniskillen in the north, also the school where Samuel Beckett uh, studied. And then he, at a quite early age, entered Trinity College Dublin, where he excelled in classics, especially in Greek. And he was taught by quite a number of influential professors there. Thereafter, he didn't graduate with a degree from Trinity College Dublin. He won a scholarship to Magdalen College, Oxford, and he studied there for four years. He then graduated. He actually had to take a, an extra exam. He actually was properly a, a graduated in 1879, I believe, and he received the best double first class degree in Literae Humaniores within the span of about five years at Oxford. At Oxford, he made a very emphatic point of making it clear that he wasn't working himself to the bone as a student. But I've recently been editing with one of my graduate students his a notebook that the notebook that he kept for his final exams and grades, and he he did work himself to the bone. He was a very very dedicated scholar. He was an outstanding classicist and a very great thinker. And that particular training would provide an amazing legacy for him as he worked his way through his career. He moves to London. He becomes a man of fashion, a man about town, a man who's known for his flamboyant dress. He's known very much as an aesthete, and he his name becomes and his image becomes associated with what's called the aesthetic movement. He becomes so renowned, if not notorious, that in the early 1880s, the theatre entrepreneur Richard Doyley Cart had a bright idea, and he thought that he could use Wilde as a publicity tool for marketing the North American tour of a comic opera called Patience, which is by Gilbert and Sullivan, and it's all about the aesthetic movement. Wilde agreed. He toured the United States and parts of Canada for a whole year, and he delivered lectures on all sorts of aesthetic topics, as well as on the history of what we would call romantic literature and modern, what was to him modern pre-Raphaelite writing. Then he comes back. He uh, meets Constance Wilde again. He's actually met Constance Lloyd, as she was known, before he went to the United States. On his return, they meet again, and then they are married in the mid 1880s in London. And within a matter of years, they have two children. The oldest boy is Cyril, and the youngest son is Vivian. Then what happens is that Wilde becomes an editor, a reviewer. He's writing an enormous number of reviews. He's also giving lectures through to the later part of the 1880s on aesthetic topics, on fashion, and a lot, you know, very similar ideas about home decoration and so on, and also his personal impressions of America. Then he starts writing long critical essays. This is around 1887, 1888. He's also producing magnificent short fiction, including very amusing and also very moving and important stories, such as the Canterville Ghost. By the turn of the 1890s, he's working on his very famous novel, and it was hugely controversial in its time. And that was the picture of Dorian Gray. And very soon after, he picks up again an aspect of his career that he had tried to excel in. In the early 1880s, and had really not made a big impact, and that's in the drama. And he produces in fairly close succession from 1892 through to 1895 four very great society comedies. And many of the listeners to this program will know the names of some of those, or may well have actually seen some of these plays: Lady Windermere's Fan, An Ideal Husband. A woman of no importance, and the importance of being earnest. What happens then? He is accused by his boyfriends, and this is the the more complicated aspect of Wilde's career that I've been investigating in my book. 
He had, since the late 1880s, and certainly since the birth of his second son, he'd become more and more interested in developing intimate relationships with younger men. Then what happened in the early 1890s was that Wilde met Alfred Douglas, and that happened at Oxford, and it was an introduction by a mutual acquaintance, and that became Wilde's most passionate but also most, most frustrating affair. Lord Alfred Douglas was an extraordinary young man in many ways, in good senses and bad senses. He was very beautiful. He was athletic. He'd gone to Winchester College, where he had really excelled in sports. He was also very gifted as a poet. There is no question about his gifts as a writer, which Wilde admired. What happens then is that Wilde has a confrontation, a series of confrontations, with Douglas's father. Douglas's father was the ninth Marquess of Queensbury. His name was John Sholto Douglas. And he is famous for having collaborated in creating the rules of modern boxing. He was a very outdoorsy man. He was a very belligerent man. And he was deeply homophobic. The Marquess of Queensbury found it disgraceful and disgusting that his third son was consorting with Oscar Wilde in public. And what the Marquess did out of frustration and anger, was to leave at one of Wilde's clubs a visiting card with this terrible scrawl on it, which was accusing Wilde of posing as, he didn't even get the article a ah in there, it's posing as, and then there's this misspelling, somdomite, S-O-M-D-O-M-I-T-E, which is a symptom of his anger and how hurriedly he wrote the card. And then Wilde picked it up. The, it had been opened, so a porter had seen it, or the man on the desk had seen it. And Wilde looked at it, and he felt that this was the last straw. Wilde had been repeatedly harassed by the Marquis, including the Marquis bringing what presumably was either a prize fighter or another antagonist with him to the family home in Chelsea. Uh, Wilde couldn't take any more of it, and he consulted with his friends, and he went headlong into what turned out to be a very perilous lawsuit. So Wilde has decided to take the Marquis of Queensbury to court after his accusation, and we reached the libel case. The Marquis of Queensbury has managed to gather a large number of witnesses who provide evidence of wild sexual involvement with men. What happens as a result? It's very interesting that you should ask this question because I think Oscar Wilde was under the impression that he would easily win this case against the Marquis because the libel was self-evident. And as you pointed out, the Marquis went to a very young attorney, a man called Charles Russell, who's the grandfather of the company known as Russell Speechleys these days. It's a huge legal operation in England, very, very well known. And Charles Russell, together with the Marquis of Queensbury, they made a decision to hire two private detectives, both of whom were former members of the Metropolitan Police, quite senior people. And they were also off former officers who knew a lot about the sexual underworld and sexual subcultures of London. And they gathered incredi an incredible number. It's about 30 witness statements. And I think Wilde was flabbergasted that all this evidence had been dredged up. It even involved the private detectives going to Paris to find out about the hotels where Wilde stayed which particular locations Wilde visited in Paris and who accompanied Wilde in Paris and who was in bed with Wilde in Paris. It was astonishing. And the sleuthing that took place was 
for Wilde, overwhelming. And of course, when it began to be exposed in court, the whole nation was startled and shocked. It was about the biggest sexual scandal of the 1890s. This episode is brought to you by ZipRecruiter. Daylight saving time is once again upon us, as is the debate about whether it's truly needed or not. But if you're hiring, it really doesn't matter. Because even though it may feel as if your day is longer, it won't help you find qualified candidates any sooner. There's only one way to do that. ZipRecruiter. Once you post your job, ZipRecruiter sends it to 100 plus job sites and then uses smart technology to find people with the skills and experience to match the position. So spring forward with ZipRecruiter. Four out of five employers get a quality candidate within the first day. Try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash extra. This episode is brought to you by J. Crew. This spring, J. Crew is telling a linen love story. From perfectly rumpled beach cover-ups and effortlessly sexy suiting to button-up shirts from the world-famous Baird McNutt Mill in Ireland, the new J. Crew collection is made to be shared, lived in, and loved for decades and generations to come. Shop linen like you've never seen it. And more new arrivals for spring 2024 at jcrew.com. This episode is brought to you by Hyperice, the leader in advanced warm-up and recovery technology. They have tons of innovative products, like Venom-heated wearables to help soothe sore back muscles, Normatec compression boots to speed up recovery and increase circulation, and Hypervolt massage guns to improve mobility. Loved by athletes like Naomi Osaka and Erling Holland. Try them yourself. Get 10% off your order with the code MOVE at hyperice.com. And Wilde was resultantly arrested after this libel case. And then we move to the pre-trial. What was the case against him? It's a very important question you've asked because it's very unusual. And one of the things that I should have mentioned just a second ago is because all the evidence was weighing against Wilde and therefore the Marquis of Queensbury had his libel upheld or his accusation upheld, according to the terms of the Libel Act of 1843, the jury decided it was in the public benefit to support and acquit the Marquis. This huge amount of documentation that had been acquired by the attorney, Charles Russell, was then handed over to high-ranking officials the Solicitor General, and so on and so forth, and the Attorney General, and the Director of Public Prosecutions, and they looked at this material, and within hours, they decided that the time had come to issue an arrest warrant for Wilde. Wilde is arrested at the Cadogan Hotel, and then the pretrial hearing begins. And what exactly happened in the pretrial? Well, it's a great observation to have to make, because... What happened at the end of the libel trial was that Queensbury's defence attorney had ready, in the wings as it were, all of these young men who claimed to have committed quote-unquote sodomy with Wilde. But because the trial founded and it was cut off, those young men did not appear in court. And we have to remember this is going all going on. The proceedings are going on at the Old Bailey, the Central Criminal Court in London. And of course, there are reporters and journalists everywhere reporting on this. So what happens next? Well, Wilde is hauled before the magistrate at Bow Street Magistrates Court, and then the pretrial hearing begins. It's the beginning of a cycle of proceedings that are quite repetitive. 
because the same witnesses come into court and they will say things like, and he committed sodomy upon me. So there are certain leading witnesses, one of whom was a young man who was still in the army called Charlie Parker, who had a long history of blackmailing and prostitution activities. There was a very treacherous young man about whom we know next to nothing called Alfred Wood, who had stolen letters uh, from Oscar Wilde to Alfred Douglas, love letters, and tried to blackmail Wilde with those. Many of these contacts had uh, come to Wilde's attention by someone who's procuring young men for him, and his name was Alfred Taylor, who was the former heir to a huge cocoa manufacturing business. He managed to squander a huge amount of money, about £45,000. That was an immense amount of money in the 1880s, early 1890s. And you've mentioned the presence of reporters in this courtroom. That must have been tremendously difficult for Wilde and, by extension, his family and friends. Moving briefly away from him for a moment, what was the situation like for his wife Constance specifically at this time? So for Constance, she had to reach some quite difficult decisions at the time of the trials and she she went to see some of her relatives in Ireland. She came back to London. She consulted with friends. She had to move out of the family home because Wilde was a bankrupt and all of the household belongings had to be sold in April 1895 in the middle of all these trials going on. And she moved to a village called Glion outside Montreux in Switzerland. And she took her boys with her, with her. And as people who know something about Wilde's life, she changed the children's name. She took a family name on her side, Holland. Her brother was called Otho Holland Lloyd. She took the Holland name. It would take a long time, many years, before the children were officially named Holland through a name change by Deedpol. But um, she used that name from that point onwards. And Although she came back when Wilde went into jail uh, on a few occasions and she saw him in jail, she was genuinely very, very distressed about her husband's situation. She also had to break to him the terrible news that his mother had died. Constance very, very sadly dies at the age of 40 in Europe. It's assumed these days by historians of medicine that she was probably suffering from what we assume to be multiple sclerosis. So at that point, the two boys, they were at different schools because they'd been separated from each other for all sorts of strategic reasons. And the boys will never see their father again, ever. They'll never see the father again. And then the boys are basically in the care of a distant relative who is their guardian, who hardly knows the children and has very, very little to do with them. And can we talk a bit about the first trial? So this comes after the pre-trial. Yes. And despite a number of witnesses pointing to wild sexual activity with men, the first trial failed. Why did this happen? It failed on a technical matter. The way the counts had been organised, and this, there were 25 counts to begin with, and they were on the basis of wild having committed acts of gross indecency with other men. So that was under a law of 1885. It's the 11th section of the Criminal Law Amendment Act. And that law was very, very significant because what it did was to say, okay, these kind of acts are no longer a felony. They are actually a misdemeanor. So that was a change in the law. And the law also, very importantly, said that any sexual act between men, and women are not involved in this, it's not between women, it's between men exclusively, 
it was a criminal activity, a misdemeanor, whether it, regard, whether it took place in private or public. A lot of the counts focused on Wilde's sexual misdemeanors with other men. At the same time, there were these conspiracy counts with Alfred Taylor because Alfred Taylor and Wilde were tried together. Now, the problem with the counts, and this is a legal technical matter, Wilde's counsel, a very gifted man, a man who was actually a man who rose up through the classes to become a knight. His name was uh, Sir Edward Clark. He was a very, very gifted individual. He had a very shrewd legal mind, and he turned around and kept saying to the judge, this isn't working because you cannot try these two men, Alfred Taylor and Oscar Wilde, on all of these counts. And the conspiracy counts were the main problem. Conspiracy was a very loose legal umbrella term used to convict someone of a felony. And what happened at the end of the first trial was that you find that the, the Crown prosecution is turning around and actually saying, you're right, the conspiracy counts don't affect both Alfred Taylor and Oscar Wilde. And that's why it failed. And immediately there is a retrial. And then, of course, what happens is that he is granted bail but he finds it very difficult to find somewhere to stay. And eventually a very good friend of his, Ada Leveson, who was a literary friend and a very, a very gifted novelist in later years, she and her family took him in. And you talk a lot about your book, and as you've just said there, that he was refused places to stay. Do you think if Wilde had been found not guilty in the second trial that these doors from his friends would have opened again? I think it's very unlikely I was reading, I, we have a library at the University of California, Los Angeles called the Clark Library, which holds the largest collection of Oscar Wilde materials anywhere in the world. And I was looking at some letters by Pohl. He went through a whole list of individuals who either would or wouldn't support Wilde. And he comments on those people who had shunned Wilde the moment the proceedings for the libel trial began, right? So there was a sense that Wilde's name was irreparably sullied, if not besmirched, if not irretrievable or unsalvageable, whichever word we want to use, that they wanted nothing more to do with him. And I think Wilde would have found the re-entry into London literary culture very difficult had he succeeded at the end of the first trial and been found not guilty. And moving on to the second trial, you say in your book that the hearings proceeded at times in ways that confounded both friends and legal observers. Can you elaborate a bit more on this? One of the things that is so very striking in looking closely at the newspaper reports of the proceedings, because as I point out in my book, the uh, official record of the proceedings has been missing for many, many years, and we don't know where those official records are. So I've had to rely on reconstructing the proceedings from newspaper reports and other kinds of documentation. One of the things that became very clear from the get-go with Wilde's senior counsel, Sir Edward Clark, was that the individuals who were providing the seemingly most impactful or most memorable and most scandalous testimony against Wilde were young men who were blackmailers and male prostitutes who were, in the eyes of the law, they were guilty of the very crime that Wilde was being sentenced on, right? Or he was being convicted of. And so I think that, that glaring irony, which was very evident to a number of journalists, 
is one of the most important aspects of the unfairness of this trial. Now, there was a working rule at the time that in the name of, in the name of justice, one could have what were called felony witnesses. None of the young men had actually ever been convicted under the law, although they've had very, they had very close brushes with the law. Nonetheless, all of the evidence that was being given by these young men was viewed not only by Wilde's uh, counsel, but quite a few other observers as contaminated evidence. The other thing which became very clear is that either Wilde's attorney or the Marquis of Queensbury or both, or maybe the private detectives had very carefully groomed these young men to say what they should say so that all of their evidence lined up very nicely. And very importantly, these young men for their own protection lodged in the homes of police officers. Also, uh, Queensbury had supplied quite substantial funds to make quite sure that these young men arrived in court in very nicely turned out clothing. They could look quite respectable and uh, that and also one of them turned up in his military uniform. So th this also struck some commentators as a highly manipulated way of presenting these young men uh, for something that they most clearly were not. And then, possibly more confounding than the hearing still, was Wilde's incarceration at the end of the second trial. Why was his sentence so shocking? I think, in the end, it was shocking for a number of reasons. One is that Justice Wills, who was a rather evangelically inclined gentleman, he was certainly very moralistic and he was certainly deeply homophobic. He claimed that Wilde had been involved at the center of a form of homosexual corruption like no other ever witnessed in court. He also accused Alfred Taylor. In the second trial, the two men were tried separately but in succession, so they were roughly in court at the same time. He said that Alfred Taylor had been running a brothel, so a male brothel. I think that really stuck with the public. Now, many newspapers said that this was a trial that exposed the deep-seated sexual immorality and corruption that was not just focusing on wild, but on the upper echelons of society, and that it had to be eradicated. There was a minority position being voiced that, in fact, Wilde had done nothing wrong because everything that he had done with these young men was consensual, right? And it was private. And that we shouldn't be intruding into the private lives, the private sexual lives of individuals. It was the one taken by the Code Napoleon in France, where there could be no invasion of sexual privacy. Not that France was uh, not prone to homophobia in this period, but it was very different in, in Britain. And it's, a, it's, a, it's very interesting to read some of these minority voices. They're coming from different, they're coming from different places. Also, there's one newspaper I talk about called Reynolds Newspaper, which was a Sunday broadsheet. And it carried, although it carried one or two very condemnatory columns about Wilde, it also carried some extraordinary articles about the extent and scope of blackmail, homosexual blackmail, and the extent of male prostitution in London, and made the point that many men especially men who had money and had social positions, were very, very vulnerable when it came to extortion by these blackmailers. And then Wilde was imprisoned. And 
once he had eventually been released, what did he do? Well, he had to be very careful about not meeting journalists. So what happened was close friends of Wilde made an agreement with the prison authorities that he should leave Reading Jail a day before his official release. Wilde didn't quite understand what was going on. A prison warder brought his clothes in quite late in the evening. This is on the evening of May the 18th. 1897, and Wilde was taken in a cab, taken to a station, not Reading Station, but a station down the road, a small station. Um, He was then ferried by train to central London, taken in a cab, and I believe he was taken, if I'm remembering this rightly, back to Pentonville, which is where he began his official sentence. And then in the morning, a cab arrived very early at 6 a.m. to take him out of the prison, and he was released. And he went to the home of someone he didn't know particularly well, but who was a supporter and a friend and a man who'd put up some bail for him. He was a a quite radical reverend of the church. His name was Stuart Hedlam. And Stuart Hedlam had a beautiful home in Bloomsbury, and Wilde's friends were there to welcome him. Later that day, Wilde was taken on another train all the way down to Croydon. And then he, he went from Croydon to New Haven, He picked up an evening ferry. He tried to be discreet, and he traveled on this um, ferry across the English Channel where he was greeted the next morning. It must have been the 20th at this point by his friends who took him out to breakfast. And then he resided for the rest of his days in Europe, both in France, initially in France, and then in Italy, and then back in Paris. And finally, what do you think we should take from these trials of Oscar Wilde and the end of his life? Oscar Wilde was a man who, in some ways, was his own worst enemy, but he, in many ways, didn't deserve to be his own worst enemy. He was a very kind, very loving man. There is no question about that. He was a man who very much had the courage of his convictions. One of the things that he said late in life, and this was when he was in his mid-40s, he believed that he had never done anything wrong. He'd never done anything wrong. What had been done wrong was the way in which the law was treating him. And what was, at that point, thousands of men who were being convicted and would be convicted. Joseph Bristow is Distinguished Professor of English at the University of California, Los Angeles. His most recent book is Oscar Wilde on Trial, The Criminal Proceedings from Arrest to Imprisonment. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden. 